From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Caitlin McNabb, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we're diving into another great interview from the Conference on Cities and Climate Change that was held in Edmonton by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, over March 5th to 7th. In this week's episode, Terra Informer Dylan Hall sat down with Deborah Roberts, co-chair of the IPCC Working Group titled Impacts, Adaptation and Vulnerability. But first, here are some environmental news headlines. Bad news for salmonoids. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency has declared that the North Saskatchewan River watershed is now infected with whirling disease. This infection alert applies to all streams, creeks, lakes, and rivers that feed into the North Saskatchewan River within Alberta's borders. Whirling disease is caused by microscopic parasites that enter the head and spine of fish and cause them to swim erratically, hence the name, and makes it difficult for the fish to catch food or escape predators. This disease is often spread to other water bodies by fish and equipment used for fishing, boating, and other water activities. Alberta's fish species that are most susceptible to this disease include rainbow trout, west slope cutthroat trout, brook trout, and mountain whitefish. Whirling disease does not affect humans or mammals. In response to the spread of whirling disease, the government of Alberta has established a plan of action that includes a whirling disease laboratory in Vegreville and working with University of Alberta researchers to develop testing methods. For more information, check out the links on our website. Terra Informer Dylan Hall had the opportunity to sit down with Deborah Roberts, co-chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's second working group titled Impacts, Adaptation, and Vulnerability. The two discussed the IPCC as an organization bridging science and practice, the importance of informality, and encouraging activism. My name is Deborah Roberts. Um, in my day job, I'm a local government practitioner. I work in the city of Durban in South Africa, so a hands-on manager of a growing African city. Um, in my other day job, which is quite an interesting situation to find myself in, I'm a co-chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and I'm helping oversee the production of the Working Group 2 contribution to the sixth assessment cycle. So we've got a strong interest on the impacts, adaptation and vulnerability caused by global climate change. Um, and so I literally span from the local to the global, from practitioner to scientist. So what does it mean to be a co-chair of the IPCC? What do you spend the majority of your time doing? It seems these days traveling and attending meetings, but in, in reality, the role of the co-chairs of the three working groups and our um, task force on emissions inventories is to oversee the technical work of the IPCC, which means we um, assist the volunteer scientists who write our reports um, to produce those reports. Uh, we are supported by a technical support unit, so we have a small group of people who are full-time and work with us. But really, we're responsible for the quality control, ensuring the reports are delivered on time, meet the outlines provided to us by governments, because governments decide what they want the reports to cover. And so we ensure that that material is, is presented as far as possible. And we interact with the government. So it's, it's a huge process of co-production. The volunteer scientists produce the reports. 
We then take it back to the governments um, who look at the summary for policymakers with us and, and work through that so that we reach joint agreement on, on the messaging. So in effect, we're, we are very privileged to, to work with some of the best climate scientists in the world um, and assist them in delivering these very important policy that are relevant reports. So as an intergovernmental panel, how does the IPCC ensure representation from a whole bunch of different countries? And I suppose for you personally, how did you get involved? Yeah. So we've, we've got a very strong commitment to regional balance. Um, so when you look at the election of the Bureau, so the people who oversee the assessment and so the co-chairs are part of, of the Bureau, there's a very strong attention to regional representation that all of the regions of the world are represented. We've just gone through the process of selecting the authors for the main assessment report. And again, what do we look at when we assess authors? Obviously expertise, experience relevant to the topic and the chapter that they will be involved in, but we're also looking at gender balance and regional balance. And the reason we look at those is not because we want to be politically correct, but we know that diverse voices will bring very different uh, views um, to the assessment process. And so that's critical for us is to have those very different opinions because the assessment process isn't a linear uh, process. We need those diverse voices to say, well, we think it means this, no, we think it means that. And then they reach a, a common agreement on that. How did I end up there? Um, I was nominated, so the Bureau is made up of people who are nominated by their um, countries, and we are then elected. So I was nominated by South Africa, and I suppose putting uh, words into the mouth of, of my government, they felt it was very important in this assessment cycle, which is so policy relevant. So this is the post-Paris assessment cycle, a time when the policy direction of the globe has changed. They wanted someone who had a strong grounding in science, because that's my original training, but who was also strongly aware of the pushes and pulls in the policy space, who had real on-the-ground, in-the-trench experiences. I was very fortunate following that nomination. The, the countries um, who voted the elections felt that those skills were, were relevant and, and so voted me in. So in thinking about the particular working group that you are co-chair of, thinking about impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. Um, I've heard that in many ways this conference in cities is partially your child and a focus of yours as cities. Um, is that true? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm, it's, it's definitely been my mission as, as a co-chair, particularly as the first um, co-chair who, who is a practitioner scientist, not a full-time research scientist, to think about what value add I can bring. Um, and I think the value add lies in, in the fact that there are an increasing number of us who are bridges between the scientific and policy world. Um, and I think common sense is, is also a, a big directive in this. The majority of us now live in cities, so if we're concerned about where climate change impacts, it impacts cities very directly. If we're concerned about adaptation, the best opportunity society has to adapt lies in the way it develops its, its cities and, and human settlements. And certainly vulnerability is, is a key issue. If we look at where all the urban growth is currently, it's in the cities of the global south. And some of the most vulnerable people now exist in those cities in some of the most vulnerable high-risk areas in those cities. So to my mind, cities are a pivot point. If we're serious about 
really transformative action, changing people's lives through science. Probably the best vehicle for that is, is through the world cities. And so this is a real attempt now to bring science into the real world, to connect with a whole new level of policymaker, the policymaker who's right at the coalface, who every day has to take decisions um, that impacts on people's lives. So yeah, certainly through the um, proposal of South Africa for a special report on cities, this conference emerged. Um, and so very happy that we're beginning to see this increasing drive towards uh, meeting the policy needs of a different level of policymaker. But also I think it, it gels well with the, the vision of the chair and the other co-chairs around looking for solutions. And um, I think solutions are going to come out of the world cities simply because they have to deal with that reality in a very immediate way. You know, if, if a crisis happens, who are you going to phone? You're not going to phone your prime minister. You're going to look for your mayor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's uh, where the solution space is, is most active, and we need to get that solution space working towards a climate-smart future. Um, and I think we, the, the great leadership we've seen from Mayor Iverson here in Edmonton just speaks to us. Here is a mayor who has a real eye on the present, but a very keen eye on the future, who understands the role of science in changing the future of his city, um, and is keen to be an active agent for change. And look how rapidly he's changed the discourse. I mean, it's, it's amazing. You would never get that change as rapidly at a national level. So a real catalyst for change. So in your talk yesterday, you said that three of the most difficult problems and complex problems in the world are climate change, urbanization, and globalization. I was wondering if you could frame the connections between those things in relation to cities for us. So, I mean, I think urbanization is, is a very obvious one in the sense that, as I said yesterday, we're living through the most rapid period of urbanization in our species history. So you know, over the next 40-odd or so years, we're going to have to build the same amount of infrastructures we built over the last 4,000. There just simply isn't enough um, resources available in order to do that. So... That's a, a huge disruptive force in the sense that we're going to have to think very differently about how we develop going forward, because it's physically no longer possible within the limits of the globe to achieve that. But the people are coming. They are migrating into cities. You've got natural growth in cities. Um, and if you look at the revision of the world population estimates, they've just been revised upwards to potentially almost 11 or 12 billion people by the end of the century on the back of sub-Saharan African growth. And a lot of that growth will occur in cities. So you've got this enormous push of people, but an inability to repeat what we've done in the past. So that's why urbanization is such a dis disruptive phenomenon. Obviously, that links into climate change in a big way because all of this big city build is now going to happen in a changed climate. And what is unique about cities is cities have always been located where there's been stability, where there's been access to resources. And when you've had a more or less stable climate, which has allowed these big economic infrastructural centers to emerge. And now you're changing the rules of the game, particularly because the majority of our urbanization is um, happening in literal areas, so coastlines along rivers. These are areas which are going to be very vulnerable under climate change conditions because of storm surge, sea level rise. So you're changing the rules of the games for cities. You're doing big city build, but changing the sort of age-old rules of city building. You are finding cities now in places where 
they can't rely on, on long-term climate being amenable to, to their activities. So that's where those two, two link in. And then the globalization, of course, speaks to the nature of what cities do. So climate change speaks to where they are, but globalization speaks to what cities do because they are now the heart of the world's economy. Um, and so the rules of that game become particularly uh, important. So if you talk about my own city region, for example, how have we been impacted by globalization? Well, if you look at the trade rules, what happens around poultry production in places like North America and Europe? Those parts of the world not only eat the white meat of the chicken, so you end up with whole half a chicken that has to go somewhere. And the trade rules currently allow for, for example, a massive dumping of the brown meat in countries like our own. And because we can't protect our poultry production, that means that in my city region, we've had to close large chicken farms because of this dumping. So the whole economy of the city is now impacted by this set of global rules, which doesn't set a fair playing field. And I think that's, that's the problem. So now you've got big city build in an untraditional form, because a lot of it is going to be informal. It's going to be small and um, medium-sized cities in places like Africa. That big city build is occurring in a situation where the climate is changing dramatically and impacting all the resource bases. And you've got these rules, which means there's no fair playing field economically to allow cities to... Um, have the resources and safety nets against these changes because poverty is this huge magnifier of all of these other problems. If you're poor and you're facing all of these other threats, you just don't have the resources to deal with them. So they form this literally a perfect storm in many places around the world. Um, and that's the difficulty. At the city level, you can't only opt to deal with climate change. It's not all about carbon. You've got to think about employment and poverty. And you've got to think about infrastructure provision. And you've got to be able to come up with an equation that allows you at the end of the day to produce cities that are sustainable, fair, equitable, and everyone has a decent chance of life and then at, at well-being. So, and that's the real conundrum for the 21st century. So you mentioned where you're from and Durban, South Africa. Yeah. I'm curious, you've written about it as a case study for urban action and transformative adaptation to address global environmental changes. Can you help listeners envision Durban and envision it, how it's adapting and acting? Okay. So, I mean, Durban, I think, is in many ways, although South Africa stands apart in terms of its level of, of urban development from many other countries on the African continent, because we are very highly urbanized compared mm -hmm. to the more rural landscape of, of other cities. We're a coastal city. We're a big port city. Um, but we're also quite a schizophrenic city because you'll see we've got a strong urban core, which looks very much like downtown Edmonton, if, if you had to have a look at it. Um, but at the same time, that urban core and within our same municipal boundaries is surrounded by vast areas of rural land under traditional leadership, so tribal leadership. So again, not dissimilar to, to the Canadian um, situation. So you've got a complex governance system between a city hall form of government and our more traditional forms of, of government and, and land tenure, which is, is a challenge. Um, 
We are a biodiversity hotspot, so there are 36 biodiversity hotspots around the world, and our city is located right in the middle of one of them. So obviously we've got an enormous responsibility to ourselves and to the world at large to protect that biodiversity. Um, and at the same time, we've got the highest levels of poverty of any of the major South African metros. So we've got all of this happening. So the question is, under those sets of circumstances, obviously development and upliftment of the poor and marginalised is important, but at the same time, we can't ignore climate change and biodiversity issues. So we've looked for opportunities to intervene that allow us to deal with all of those. You know, so just as we've spoken about urbanisation, climate change and globalisation, how do we get in there and have interventions that allow us to work with, with all of those particular challenges? So we're probably best renowned for our large-scale reforestation work. I think we've still got the largest-scale reforestation projects uh, in South Africa in, in our city, um, where we've looked at recouping some of the lost biodiversity. So we've had very unsustainable land use practices in the past large-scale sugarcane farming. Um, there have been opportunities now in parts of the city to replant the indigenous forests that uh, would have existed in that area. We've done that by virtue of working with surrounding poor communities, assisted by an NGO, where those communities have grown the trees to rebuild the forests. What they have then received um, in return for that are credit notes. So if you grow a certain number of trees a certain height, you get a credit note, and you can use those credit notes in tree stores to get building materials, clothes, bicycles, and so on. And those interventions have allowed communities to do a number of things. Some people have learned how to drive. They've used their credit notes to get driving lessons. Some people have sent their children to better schools. Some people got building materials to build houses for, for the first time for, for their families. Promoting a cycle of upliftment in those communities. Um, but also an opportunity to raise awareness around climate change to show that while there is a, a challenge afoot for the city, there's an opportunity in our response to that challenge to ensure that we address poverty um, as, as well in, in that particular cycle. So we have several of those large-scale reforestation programs, and that's prompted thinking now in, in the city about how we scale that up. You know, what are the value chains that can come from that kind of upliftment? You know, where do you take people next? after the reforestation work. And so that's the kind of value add and changing the nature of what you think about an urban economy and, and where you work as an urban resident, um, which is quite challenging. So I'm wondering if I was a mayor of a city, how would I access that scientific information or should I? Um, how, do we, how do we bridge that gap? Yeah. And, and this is where I feel passionately that the, the role of the educational system in universities is, in fact, the glue that holds this um, very important set of, of circumstances together, because we have to train a new breed of people. You know, when I went to university way back when Moby Dick was a guppy and dinosaurs still roamed the earth, you went into the science faculty and, I mean, it was uncool to go to the side of campus that the social scientists were on. That's how distinct the division was. We were not told that people existed, that people were relevant to our science. Um, and certainly, so we were given a whole set of high-level scientific tools, but I had to learn for myself how to use them in the real world, in the political space. You're not going to get a mayor who's going to naturally adopt science. You're going to need the bridging people, the people who can speak both languages. We, 
it is so urgent that we can't afford to have the situation I had where I had to teach myself to be operative in the real world. We need to be training people to be those bridging people that who, who understand the languages of both, who understand the dynamics of both, to assist the mayor, because the mayor has a very clear vision. He's got a political role. He's got a leadership role. He needs people who can help him, who can do the translation to bring that information. I think once you've got those bridging people in, life becomes so much easier. So around me, in my previous department, I built a team of 40 people who are bridging people, scientists, but who can work in the political environment. And that's allowed us to have a very significant impact in our city on the development debate by having these people who can work. So to me, where we really need to be focusing our attention is universities. Universities need to be training people to be these bridging people. I think they're getting better at the transdisciplinarity, but they're still not good enough in training people to be operative in the real world and what that means, because those are a different set of rules to the rules of natural science, social science, arts, philosophy, and we need to be, be equipping people to do that. And it's not for everyone, so not everyone is going to play that role, but there certainly are an increasing number of what I refer to as practitioner scientists. Um, but we need to be get more uh, active in producing those, producing a production line of those, so that the mayor doesn't have to become a scientist, mm. but he has someone at his side who can translate for him or her. So one thing you said yesterday that I thought was really interesting was that we are not building cities for living, but for the investment of capital, and that needs to change. So I'm wondering how and what needs to happen for city planners to stop focusing on investment and focusing on resilience and livability and well-being. You see, and, and I think that's, that really links to a change in value systems. Um, you know, so we're building system or cities around a current set of values which prioritizes GDP, profit, growth. And I think there's a, a new narrative which is countermanding that, which is about well-being. Um, and well-being in a situation where you don't have to drive incredible growth, and it's about equality and justice. But again, that's a very new conversation in the urban space. Um, and I think we need champions for that. Um, and so I think there's a strong call in meetings like this to draw out those people who have that new vision. You know, the fact that we spoke yesterday very strongly about informality, governance, politics, suggests that the narrative is changing. But I think there's a strong, you know, I'm a strong believer in activism. I think there's a strong call for people to rise up and say, we need to do something in a different way. Um, and by people being courageous enough to make that statement, other people become courageous enough to challenge the system because it's very hard to change these systems. You know, they were put in place for a reason. Um, they're difficult to change, but that's where it comes down to the individual. Each one of us needs to become an activist for change, to change that understanding of what we want out of cities, you know, the kind of cities we want. Um, and the fact that the responsibilities, and I believe that's where Mayor Iverson is, you know, has that bigger vision, He's responsible for Edmonton, but I think in the role he's adopting, he's seeing himself as also being responsible for other cities around the world by leading a new debate around the, the role of science. And so I think we only change that by virtue of changing ourselves and expressing that we want something different and new. And I think that that is emerging, but it needs to be stronger, needs to be louder, more vocal, and that can only come from all of us uh, articulating that need. And you said we can't understand urbanization without understanding informality. 
what is informality? Why do we need to understand it? So, and, and I mean, I suppose it links back to, to my previous comment in the sense that for cities currently, the rules of the game are known. We have a certain idea of city structure, form, operation, infrastructure, um, and, and processes that happen in the city. Informality is really everything that happens outside of that um, traditional approach to, to urban development. So it's development that happens outside of the control of town planning schemes. It's economic activities that doesn't fall within the usual regulations of countries or nation states or, or cities. It's the places where people are building cities for themselves because the current city doesn't meet their needs. They are constructing elements of the city that is responsive to their poverty, their lack of access to formal systems, their inability to penetrate um, very rigid economic systems which have certain rules of the game that, that don't allow everyone in. So the real city builders um, are those people who are now saying, well, the current city doesn't work for me, so we're going to create another version of the city which does work for me, which allows me to access it and to, to create, create a livelihood. And because of the pressures on the Global South, that informality is certainly most prevalent in the Global South, but I can see it in all my travels. It's beginning to emerge in cities of the Global North as well. I mean, go to Paris currently. This wonderful, beautiful, grand, classic city, but on the streets, entire communities are living um, in an informal way because that big classic city currently can't respond to, to their needs. And so I think that pressure will increase as the number of people increase, as the resource pressures increase, as this hyper-political world continues to be so political and people find it more and more difficult to um, secure their safety. I mean, I've just met someone from Eritrea who's working here in a security role in, in Edmund. He had to flee his country because of security reasons. I think as borders break down and people have to move and the rules break down, this informality will increase in the North and in the South. And I think we have got to own that as one of the major mega trends of the 21st century. We want it to go away. We think we will make it go away. We simply will not. And I think that's the new, we can learn lessons from, from that, that approach to the city. We don't want to romanticize it because it is hard and it is difficult. We want to improve well-being there, but I think it's a new form of city building. It's about that right to the city and access to the city. And, and people now are saying, well, if cities are the place where the world is actually happening, the economy, the socialization, the culture, we all want a part of it. And, and we have to open up the doors more effectively in cities. So we're going to have to throw out some of the rule books, I'm afraid. So Deborah, I could keep talking to you for an hour, but we are out of time. If there was any one big takeaway that you could request listeners to take with them, what would it be? Yeah, you know, I've, I've kind of got to the age where I've, I've reverted to um, my youthful activism again, and it would really urge people to become city builders in your own right, you know, and, and you can build cities in, in a number of ways. Get to know your neighbours. Um, be responsive to who you vote into government in, in, in your cities. Hold your leaders accountable. Recognize that your city is part of a huge socio-ecological system that covers the face of the world. Think about what activities in your cities mean for people in far-flung places in, in other cities. So be more cognizant of your role. 
as an individual in the largest system that we as humans have built and that your activities, be they what you do in your home, how you get to work, the food you consume, the leaders you elect, all have an impact on our future and be an activist in all of those roles. I think people see, well, you know, I can't be an activist because that means I've got to sort of camp outside Wall Street. No, you can do it in day-to-day -day activities. And I think that's the call for the 21st century is we all have to become activists again. So I urge you all to be city builders and, and activists in your, your own personal ways. I will try my best. Thank Excellent. you so much. That was Dylan Hall interviewing Deborah Roberts, co-chair of the IPCC's second working group. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at terrainforma and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Carter Grzitza, Sydney Carbonic, Dylan Hall, and Hannah Cunningham. I've been your host, Caitlin McNabb. Catch you next week.